Hello, and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education. I'm your host, Jill Anderson. Today, we are talking to Regine Diacroix, an assistant professor at Columbia University. She just published a new piece in the Harvard Educational Review entitled Symbols and the Strange Fruits, What the Talk Black Parents Have with Their Sons Tells Us About Racism. And that's the topic of today. Welcome, Regine. Thank you for having me, Jill. It's great to have you on. So tell us more about this talk that black families are having with their sons about race. What what does this talk look like? Okay, um, so first I want to define the talk. Uh, so it's the way that black parents communicate information uh, to their children about uh, personal and group identity as it relates to race, intergroup relationships, and also their place in the racial hierarchy. And it's important to note that it's not just black parents who are having this conversation. Um, very recently, there was some talk about the way that uh, Muslim parents were speaking with their children during this particular climate. There's also a lot of literature showing that um, overwhelmingly parents of color do some kind of racial socialization, though it differs across race and ethnicity um, and context text, obviously. So over the course of a year, I conducted interviews with families. I became interested in this um, after Trayvon Martin's death, actually. So his parents spoke very much about the way that they spoke with him about racism and how he should comport himself as a young black man. And after that, many parents started coming forth and sharing their own stories, not only of the conversations that they were now having with their children, but of the conversations that their parents had had with them. Um, And at that point, I started to become interested in the history of the talk or the temporality of the talk, the way that the talk relates to time. And what I learned was while it's a a feature of black life or a feature of the lives of many minoritized populations, it's also very much um, a public part of American life. And what I mean by that is that the talk reflects what's happening with us as a society racially. Now, what I found looking at um, the way that parents are talking with their sons today and comparing that to the talk over four other historical periods. So that's the hip-hop generation, the post-protest generation, the protest generation, and the pre-Brown v. Boer generation. I found that the talk that parents are now having with their sons is the same talk that parents were having with their sons during the Jim Crow era. So the same kinds of messages are being conveyed. So did that surprise you? You know, I've really been thinking about that a lot because a lot of people have asked me if I was surprised by my findings. I do think that I did not expect the findings um, to be what they were. While while I know that we are in dire um, straits at this particular time, I don't think I expected it to be so clear that the conversation or the tenor of the conversation would be um, so similar to conversations had, um, you know, after slavery. Can you maybe share an example or what these conversations might look like? Sure. So, for example, um, Some of the phrases, so this builds on a prior study, and some of the phrases that they um, heard from participants, and this is Brown and Lysane Brown, they heard that participants uh, heard from their parents something like, um, always do what, what you're told by whites, and whites are always right. Now, in my uh, work, what I find is that um, 
white um, whiteness, white people become synonymous with um, policing and the police force. Um, in all of these instances, parents are not only thinking about the way that their sons are being perceived as black boys and black men, but they're thinking about that position against the backdrop of policing, police brutality, and encountering white police officers. Um, and so this idea of always do um, what you're told and whites are always right um, is reflected in the kinds of statements that parents make or what they tell their sons to do um, when encountering police. Um, so here is uh, one example of some text. That's hard to tell your kid. This is a reality of where we live, and yeah, it could be you one day. I don't think so, but it's possible. Who sets up their kid for maybe you're going to get killed? How could you do that? How could you do that? And still have a kid that's energetic and hopeful and unafraid to tackle the world. Um, and so in that excerpt, the parent is uh, very upfront with her child in telling him that he could possibly kill, be killed. There's another excerpt uh, that I'd like to share with you um, about a parent who speaks about what her sons need to know um, when interacting with the police. Um, so she says, I know the police don't like when you move your hands around a lot. So if you're driving, you keep your hands on the steering wheel. If you're talking, you don't move your hand around. If they ask you questions, you don't be, you speak to them articulately. You answer the questions. You don't try to mouth off and stuff like that. You just have to play the game. You can't yell, can't argue. You have to speak respectfully and answer whatever and don't try to agitate them. Wow. This is some very challenging parenting things to handle. Absolutely. What do you think this says about where we are as a country if black families are relating to a time before the civil rights movement? Are we moving backwards? You know, it's interesting that you should ask that. And that's, you know, really what I discuss um, in my implications. You know, this has great implications for all of us. This isn't just a black issue. This is a unique, um, this is an American issue that's unique to America, I think, in many ways. Um, I actually, in my study, like to think of America as a tree mm -hmm. and black people as perpetual strange fruit. So in the same way that growth rings alert us to the climate and conditions that have informed a tree's growth, I believe that the talk lets us know about changes in our racialized environment. Um, and as I said before, the talk has changed over time. So in between Jim Crow and this period, there have been um, some minor changes in the talk uh, that reflect legislation, such as civil rights legislation. Um, and then we now have this uh, turning back, if you will, as you've mentioned. The fact that we've returned to uh, prior conditions um, I think helps us understand the chronic inequity that characterizes this period. I think it begs an examination of our institutions um, and the way that they continue to reify racial boundaries. Um, and again, the way that we invest in and demonstrate as a society a preference for whiteness. Now, you do talk about sons, and I wanted to ask whether this is any different for daughters. Now, I focused on sons um, because I was looking at um, the experience shortly following Trayvon Martin's death. But I think if we look at the literature, if we look at Monique Morris's work, um, Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, the experiences that black girls and black boys are having are quite similar. And I think um, 
a limitation or a direction for future research in my work would be to look at the experiences of adolescent girls, um, which I um, imagine are not very different if we look at their experiences, if we look at what we're seeing in the media, not very different from what's happening with adolescent boys. Reading uh, through this paper is is really difficult in a lot of ways about where we are and even just trying to relate to parents trying to talk to their children and teach them to be non-threatening and to just obey and almost accept this systemic racism and discrimination. So how can black parents have a talk with their sons without imbuing a sense of hopelessness. Do you think it's possible? uh, Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) That's right. Do you think it's even possible? I think it's, uh, I think it's absolutely possible. Um, And it's why, you know, generations of black people have persisted and continue to um, survive and thrive. And I don't see this as a hopeless endeavor. Um, You know, looking at the literature, uh, Preparing children for discrimination is actually a protective factor, and so it is linked to improved um, academic outcomes as well as improved mental health. Um, I think this is something that should be thought about as navigational capital, and so um, black children and you know, children that are part of any minoritized population, when they're being prepared for discrimination and bias, they're being taught a type of navigational capital that helps them to recognize spaces that are hostile to them and understand how to um, move through those spaces, if you will. Uh, And then when I think about some of the parents in my study who who spoke to this point specifically, they were very careful about engaging in what I think of as critical race parenting, and, and there's quite a literature on this. But this practice of deconstructing dominant messages about race and racism with your children. So this means providing your children with counter narratives about race. In some cases, uh, my parents provided an alternate syllabus, and, and this is actually my own personal experience as well, where my own parents supplemented, as many of the parents in this study did, their their child's curriculum um, to make sure that their child was receiving narratives um, that reflected people of African descent in a more accurate light um, and reflected their contributions to history as well. Um, Parents also enrolled their children in different cultural programs, rites of passage programs, and made sure that their um, children were a part of a network and community that would meet regularly, um, trying to surround them with certain images, having conversations about um, ideas. So many parents, even when watching, let's say, um, a show on, let's let's say, Nickelodeon or Disney Channel, would actually deconstruct what was happening on the show with their children. Um, and so I, I see it as, a, as an empowering um, practice to, to let your children know that there is a racial hierarchy, that they have a particular place in that hierarchy, so that they are not blindsided, but instead they are armed to succeed and also to inform others um, who may be or who want to be blind to the racial hierarchy and the way that it affects um, those who are othered. You know, you mentioned supplemental curriculums, and I'm curious whether there's a way that educators can take this this study and use it somehow to to benefit all kids in the classroom could this be some kind of educational tool i absolutely i think that 
knowing what um, is happening in the homes of many black children, knowing that there's a continued need um, for black parents to speak with their children about um, racial discrimination and bias um, means that teachers should consider what this means in their practice. So what does it mean for you to know that there's a child sitting in your classroom who, in addition to completing, say, um, his reading log or her reading log um, is also having conversations nightly, daily, weekly, monthly um, about race and racism and, and his or her place in the, in the racial hierarchy. What does it mean for you and what does it mean for your other students? Um, how can you help other students understand race and racism, racial identity development, um, the relationship of racial discrimination to um, other outcomes of well-being or indicators of well-being? Um, you know, what are, what are some different read-alouds that we can do for the lower grades? What are some critical conversations we can have for higher grades? What are some materials we can provide our parents with so that they're able to also have conversations? Uh, many of my colleagues um, have, you know, colleagues, white colleagues who have white children have asked me what this means, you know, for their white children. And it means letting your children know that they are also raced um, and that they are also a part of this racial hierarchy and, and the role that we all have in it um, early on is, is one way to turn this research into something actionable. Great. Well, this has been a really fantastic conversation and very interesting work. Do you, is there any place that people can follow what you're doing? Yes. Um, so people can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at counter narrative. And so that's counter narrative without an E. Um, sadly, I am not on any other social media. And I know I am an outlier. Good for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, this is Regine D'Aqua, and she's an assistant professor at Columbia University and has a new article in the Harvard Educational Review, Winter, Symbols and the Strange Fruits. Thank you so much, Regine. Thank you, Jill. This is the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thank you for listening.